Well, it's uh, good to see you. Happy New Year, especially if you're a guest. Man, we're so glad you're here to start the year off with us, whether you're watching online or in here in person. Uh, you're always welcome to anything we have uh, going on. Uh, my name's David, and I am uh, the pastor of our church. We look forward to an exciting year. We're still kind of in that transition between last year and this year. You know, it's kind of holiday time and people traveling and going, and you're, you're in that transition time. And uh, you're probably still thinking a lot about, a little bit about last year, thinking about what's going to happen this year. I do kind of reflect on that, where it's going to fit. And you kind of want to know how things are going to be. And, and the truth of the matter is, you know, you, you just think about the things that happen, and, and crazy things happen in our lives every year. You know, and, and we see the things that happened last year. So many of them were unexpected. We look forward to the coming year, and we know there's unexpected things going to happen. And, and for some year, people, it's been really tough, you know, and you wonder, you wonder about why things happen. Sometimes things don't make sense. You just look at, you know, you, know, you see things that are negative. People, people pass away. You know, families tragically get torn apart. We hate that. Uh, people struggle, struggle with illness. Uh, yet great things happen. People get married. Uh, people come to faith. We've seen so many salvations the last few months. Um, you know, people have kids. And the next year is going to be the same way. And you're, you're trying to figure out. I always try to figure out, you know, why these things happen. You, you try to rationalize all of it. You try to make sense of it. And when you try to make sense of things, you tend to ask a simple question, the question, why? Why do these things happen? Why does someone very, very young tragically get sick? Why, uh, why does a certain family, it looks like they have it all together, why do they, they fall apart? At the same time, why, why does good things seem to happen to this guy over here, this gal over here? And why, why do some people have, it seems, a better year than others? And we try to find the answer to that. And the problem is, why is simply a wrong question? <clears throat> why is wrong? Because we never truly find the answer to why. Why is wrong? Because it misses the most important question of all. And we try to make sense of the life. The most important question is who? Who is the one that we can look to for guidance? Who is the one that helps us think through it? Who's the one that helps us make sense of life? And inevitably, when you ask the question, who, you should come to God. And what I want to do for the month of January is to spend five weeks just looking at God because he is the one who makes sense of it all. God is ultimately the one who makes sense of all of life. And we want to look at the characteristics of God, some of them at least. We're going to see next week the one who reveals. Then we'll see the one who creates. Then we'll see the one who is just. And by the way, when we look at the justice of God, the justice of God is completely different than the justice that we see in our culture today. We're going to look finally at the one who loves. But I want to begin, begin this whole year off with, with looking at the one who is holy. Because to think of God ultimately is to come to understand that he is holy. In just a few moments, we're going to be looking at a passage in Isaiah chapter 6, the call of Isaiah. But what I want you to get from this message is very simple. I want you to understand that God is holy. God is holy. And for life to make sense, I need to understand what his holiness means. If you want to make sense of any part of your life, you want to make sense of last year, you want to make sense of the year that comes up, you begin by trying to grasp and understand something about the holiness of of God. And so as we begin this, I'm, I'm simply going to talk about who God is. We're going to start this year off a little bit about who God is. And to begin that, it would be to understand that God is the one who is holy. It, it's hard to say that one characteristic describes God because you can't, because he is so much bigger than anything we can imagine. But as many have said in the past, if God would just allow us to simply try to begin at some place, it seems that the scriptures, as they reveal something to us about God, would want us to begin this way, that God, God is holy. And so we're going to come, you know, the passage of Isaiah, 
It, uh, it is the call experience of this great prophet uh, who has a book that is unbelievably long at 66 chapters. I'm right in the middle of it right now. I'm reading through Isaiah. I'll be through in probably a couple of days. And it, it can be difficult at times unless you begin with the understanding of relief who God is. Now, Isaiah was a prophet in the uh, 8th century B.C. in the 700s. There were four primary prophets in the 700s. Two of them dealt with the northern kingdom of Israel and two with the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel's a nation split in two in 922 B.C. under the reign of Rehoboam. The northern kingdom became Israel, and uh, the two prophets you see in the 8th century are Amos and uh, Hosea, the book of Amos, unbelievable book, as Amos just laced a hammer to the people in their unbelievable sin. In the southern kingdom, the two primary prophets you see writing were Micah and, and Isaiah. And Isaiah appears to be what we would call a, a court prophet. He was a royal prophet. He preached or prophesied to the royal family. We know from the very beginning of his book, he was a prophet during four kings, uh, Uzziah, his son Jotham, and, and there's a little bit of a co-reign between them, Ahaz and Hezekiah. Three of those kings were basically good kings. Every king in the history of either Israel or Judah was measured about whether or not they followed the way of David, primarily in how they dealt with the worship of God. Did they worship God exclusively? And in addition, did they destroy Baalism? Well, Uzziah and his son Jotham, they worshiped God, so they got credit for that. They didn't wipe out the worship of Baalism, however. The next king, Ahaz, was a thoroughly evil king who, like all of the kings of the northern kingdom, worshiped Baal and encouraged the people to worship Baal. His son, Hezekiah, completely reversed that. He destroyed the worship of Baalism in the entire country and brought reform back and was the best king that the southern kingdom had since the time of David. Isaiah was the prophet for all these guys. In addition, during the time of his prophecy, of his period of serving, and a prophet revealed the mind of God, the northern kingdom in 722 was completely destroyed by the Assyrians. Isaiah saw that. That was in his mind, in the backdrop. He was a prophet then from about 750, maybe 740, but at least by 740, probably 750, to sometime during Hezekiah, who stopped his reign in 685. He begins his book talking and warning the people about what is to come. Look at what was happening in the northern kingdom of Israel. Look at the worship of Baal. Look at your own worship of Baal. Look at the, look at the way you treat one another. Don't think God's going to let you get away with this. And then in chapter 6, a part of his life changes. And we see a direction for Isaiah to take. And it begins in chapter 6, verse 1, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Uzziah died in 740, 739, right in there. In that year, maybe before, maybe after, we don't know, Isaiah had this experience. He was either in the temple and had this vision, or he had this vision that placed him in the temple, and he saw the Lord exalted, lifted high, and he, the Lord, was up where he was to be worshipped. The temple was the place where they came to worship God, Yahweh. So it made simple. The Lord, Yahweh, would be there to be worshipped in his vision. And it says this, the very hem of his garment, to the edge, the train of what he was wearing filled the whole temple. Now back then, you know, they, they wore robes back then. That was the common dress. And at the hem of the robe, uh, normally there was a color, there was a tassels, there was something to signify your station, your position in life. So here's the idea that God, his, his hymn just filled the whole place. And then verse 2 tells us this. 
that there were seraphim standing above him, and each had six wings. With two each covered his face, and with two each covered his feet, and with two each flew. So they had the wings, and the wings covered the eyes to represent they couldn't look upon the holiness of God, the feet to represent the bow for worship, and the two they flew. Now, the word seraphim means burning ones or fiery ones. They were some type of angelic being. Do not waste your valuable time in life trying to create some concept of what these fiery seraphim mean. It is just, I see people do this all the time. They take the seraphim, they take the place with cherubim, they take angels, and they just try to create. They take these limited bits of scripture and try to create this whole angelology, this whole idea of the study of angels. And the truth of the matter is, angels were not given to us to be studied. They're simply created beings by God that do one thing, serve God. If you want to learn something from the angels, learn this. Serve God, serve God, serve God. I don't know how much more I can say, serve God. And so the, the seraphim, the fiery ones, don't, don't overread into it. This is the only place they're mentioned. They were serving God in humility, in the adoration of worship. And this is how they served him. We see in verse 3, they began to sing, and they called out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies, or is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So they're singing, and they're singing back and forth. Some are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. Some are singing, the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, the Lord of armies, the idea of an army is, is the idea of power. Here, Judah was this weak little nation with a weak little army. The mightiest empire in the world at that time was the Assyrians, but the size of their army. God is the one over his armies are powerful more than all. And basically, we usually say the Lord Almighty, the powerful one. And they were crying out, holy, holy, holy. They repeated it three times. The significance of this repetition is, is not, you know, that this is the tr something Trinitarian and people try to find the Trinity in here. And, and you know, just don't, that Isaiah didn't have a concept of the Trinity. Trinity existed. He didn't know what it was. They had no idea about it. The three times is for emphasis. If you doubled something, it was emphatic. If you tripled something, it was the highest form of emphasis. And it's talking about the holiness and the glory of God, which filled not only the temple, but the whole earth just speaks of the glory of God. Next week, I'm going to preach about God's revelation of revealing himself and how the world shows who God is, God's glory. Now, the word glory comes from a word that means heavy or weighty. You measured gold by its weight. You wanted a heavy amount of gold. Wealthy people tended to be heavy. That's how they signified their wealth. They kind of overate. There are times when I wish I lived back in the olden days. I would feel much better about myself than right now, you know. Some of you would feel great about yourself, you know. And so the weightiness of God is his glory. Oftentimes we think of glory as brilliance. In the New Testament, the concept can be of a brilliance, of an illumination of light. The idea is revealing and glory reveals the holiness of God. We understand the holiness of God through glory. That's why we glorify God. We recognize he is holy. We praise God. We honor God. We do these things to recognize the holiness of God. The word holy then comes from a word that means to be cut or separate. And it's the idea of separation. God is separated unto himself. He is complete. He is holy in need of nothing. God needs nothing. Sometimes some parents do this, and I've heard them do this, seen them do this, when their kids will ask them, Mommy, Daddy, why did God make me? 
Why did God create the world? And they don't know what to tell their kid. They want to keep it simple. So they'll say, well, honey, God was lonely and he needed somebody to love. You're teaching your kids heresy when you do that. You're teaching your kids God needed something. God didn't need anything. Don't start your kids' theological career off on the wrong note, saying there is some deficiency in God, that he needed something. God is holy. There is no need within God. He created us so we could experience the holiness of God and his blessings that our sin has destroyed that relationship. He's the holy one. The idea of holy means you're not common. You're not profane. You're not secular. And so God is holy. So Leviticus 19, 2 tells us, God says, be holy for I am holy. In, in, in 1 Peter, he repeats that in 1 Peter 1, 16. Be holy for God is holy. Jesus says, be perfect because your heavenly Father is imperfect. Be separate, complete. And the idea of ethical living follows. Because the experience of the holiness of God, the glory experiences that holiness, is through the character of God as seen in his love, in his mercy, in his forgiveness, in his justice, in his wrath, in the way he deals with sin. The character of God is holy. It is ethical. So we tend to understand that holy living is ethical living, which is fine as long as you get it from the point of it's ethical, it's moral, because it brings us where God wants us to be, separate from the world he created. Holy is God. Full of his glory is the earth. And verse 4 says this, it says, The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. And the temple was filling with smoke. This signifies just the greatness, the power of God. So you have this holy God full of greatness, full of this unbelievable power, revealing himself to Isaiah. So here's the thing. The thing you need to see is this. Everything we do must have God's holiness in mind. In your life, if you want to understand life, everything you do, especially when you become a father of Jesus, must have God's holiness in mind. So we want to honor God and glorify God in everything we do. We say that all the time around here. You always hear us saying, let's glorify God in everything we do. Let's honor God in everything we do. Why? Because we got to keep the holiness of God central to everything. That happens in the way you and I think. It happens in the way churches think. Churches must always make decisions with the holiness of God in mind. Every decision we make. We look at it from the standpoint, are we going to honor holy God? Now, if you want to make sense of life, you begin with God. And to understand God, you come to his holiness. Whatever life is, when you try to unravel it and make sense of God, you must come to the fact that God is holy. To understand life is to begin with this beautiful holiness of God. It's who God is. So we go from who God is then to who we are. The t time just does not allow, allow me to describe to you the unbelievable sinfulness of the world in which Isaiah lived and the people of God, how utterly corrupt and sinful they had become. The people, both in the northern kingdom and even in the southern kingdom, had begun to worship false gods of the pagans of the Baals. I described it in some detail last May in my series in Elijah. They would, they would, they would fall down 
and to these, to these corrupted images of what deity is. And to them, the idea of deity, were, they really, they took almost the worst parts of man and they glorified them, the violence, the bloodshed, the corruption. Go read the first two chapters of Amos so to see the corruption of pagan thinking. I mean, in, in, in the worship of, of, of Baal, you would just slaughter people to show your honor to him. You would take your own children and you would kill them to get the attention of the Baals. That's what Ahaz did. What made Ahaz such a cruel and wicked king? You see Ahaz's story begin in chapter 7. Is he would slaughter his own child to, to worship Baal. And involved in, in the, the most perverse of practices and just the most de degrading of perversions, of twisted corruption. They would participate in this. They, would, they, would, they were so cruel to their own people. Instead of taking care of those who were suffering, the widows and orphans who lived in destitute conditions and unbelievable poverty, they were destroying them, taking advantage of them, forcing children to be sold into slavery, forcing widows to turn to prostitution. It was just a corruption. And in the midst of all this, they would come then on the Sabbath and they would come to the temple and say, we're going to worship God. We're going to come and offer sacrifices. We're going to celebrate the new moon. We're going to celebrate all the festivals. And they would come to God having lived in this utterly corrupt, sinful, wicked, perverse way and said, oh, by the way, God, we worship you too. <laughs> and God says, it doesn't work that way. And Isaiah saw the holiness of God in verse 5. Woe is me. I'm ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. There are not words. There's not a way to just describe to you the emotional impact of Isaiah right here. Woe is me is a lament. We don't lament much, but to, but to woe is to be utterly broken. He's broken. He says, I'm ruined. I'm destroyed. I'm a dead man. I'm facing the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, the glorious King, and I am a sinful man. My lips are impure. The idea of unclean lips is the impurity. And he didn't even participate in the sin of the Israelites. He didn't do all the pagan stuff, and he still sees himself that way. And he identifies with his own people and says, I live in the middle of these sinful people. He was a part of their culture. He's a part of the world. He didn't isolate himself out. He said, we are a sinful, wicked people and I'm in the presence of holy God I am destroyed see the holiness of God helps me realize the sinfulness of my life it helps me understand the need for repentance see we're, we're all okay with admitting we do some bad things so I sin I, I, I'll sin now and then and it's not that we sin it's that we are sinners that our nature is corrupted. Our nature is in rebellion against God. Here is holy God, perfect and complete. We don't just simply commit sins. We have rebelled against God and removed ourselves completely from his presence with the perversion of our life. Part of the problem with our culture today is it won't recognize its sinfulness because it won't recognize the holiness of God. Then an amazing thing happened. That can only be described by the grace of God. Verse 6, we see this. And one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, the coal symbolized purity. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, it has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And atonement is made for your sin by grace and grace alone. Not because Isaiah deserved it. His confession didn't make him deserve anything, but by the grace of God, which by his grace he revealed himself to Isaiah. 
He took away his guilt, not the feeling of guilt, the condition of guilt. He just didn't take away the experience of sin. He took away the condition of being a sinner and said, your sin, your sinful condition has been atoned for, has been made right with God, which is what Jesus has come to do, to bring atonement, to be made right. You have been put in right place with God, even though he didn't deserve it, by grace. So here's the thing. God is holy, and I am not. And that is a problem I cannot overcome on my own. I need grace. See, we want to believe we can overcome all our problems, which is why life doesn't make sense. We keep living this life, and it doesn't make sense because we keep thinking we have the power, the strength, and the ability, and the brilliance, and the ingenuity, and the science, and all the facts, and we know what we're doing, and we can overcome anything, and life will make sense, and we can't because we're the wretchedness of sin and rebellion against God. And there's nothing I can do apart from the grace of God. And life doesn't make sense to people because they refuse to honor the holiness God. To make sense of life is to understand we are sinners. It just is. I don't know. I don't want to tell you. Listen, if you want to you buy all that stuff that we're basically good old boys, if you want to buy all those books that tell you out there from folks, men and women, some with really nice hair and big fancy teeth, they want to tell you, you're okay. Everything's all right. Go ahead. But understand, that's not a message from God. The message from God is I'm holy. And you're not. And you need to be cleansed. But, but there's great news coming. And the message of Isaiah has it. It tells us what God will do. And that's the third thing we want to see what God will do. And so, verse 8. Just this phenomenal verse. Here's what it says. Then I, Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord. The Lord is speaking. Ah, no angel. This is God. Whom shall I send who will go for us? And then I said, here am I. Send me. So simple. God says, who will I send? Who will go for us? Some of people make a big deal about the word us. What does that mean? And they say, well, it's Trinity or the angels. I've shared this with you before, especially in the Old Testament. There are numerous places where God is expressed in plurality. The singular God, I is expressed in plurality because we cannot capture God in language. So the fullness of God is sometimes captured in the plural. And that's what you have here, this majestic God saying, who am I going to send? Who's, who can go for me now? And I say, I was like, I'll go, God. I've seen your holiness. You have cleansed me from my wretched sinfulness. I'm clean now. I'm in a different state. I get it. Life makes sense. I'll go. And he went. And if you were to continue, not right now, but later on, if you were to continue, later on, you go read the rest of chapter 6, and you go read the first two chapters of Amos. That's your, kind of your homework, which none of you, if you're like me, you'll never do. So that's fine. <laughs> he preaches this harsh message. It's a message of judgment. It's a message saying God's coming because you're worshiping the false gods, because you're crushing your own people. God's coming. But there's hope. The great thing about the book of Isaiah is there's always hope. In fact, if you were to turn the next page, don't do it now, and go to chapter 7. This is the place where you see Isaiah 
in front of King Ahaz, that wicked king, say, Ahaz, ask for a sign. And Ahaz says, I'm not going to ask God for a sign. And Isaiah said, fine, the sign is coming. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son. And later on, 700 plus years later, the angel Gabriel comes to Joseph and says, that passage talks about the son Mary's about to have because of the Holy Spirit of God. You see, in the book of Isaiah, even if Isaiah doesn't always understand it, and he probably doesn't, he begins to reveal the mind of God. And as he reveals the mind of God, he begins to point to a Christ that's coming. And you read in chapter 7, and chapter 9, chapter 11. I'm in, the, I'm in the middle of reading the book of Isaiah. And you just see unfolding the picture. Someone's coming. You get to chapter 42, someone's coming. You get to chapter 52, verse 13, through chapter 53, verse 12. And you see the suffering servant describing the Lord's coming. Isaiah is saying someone is coming who's going to change everything. And we understand that someone is Jesus. The Old Testament, I tell you all the time, is a book of promise. The New Testament is a book of fulfillment. Listen, God does not reveal his holiness to destroy us, but to forgive us and save us ultimately in Christ. God didn't reveal that he's holy to destroy us. He didn't have to reveal his holiness to destroy us. He just destroyed us. Why does he reveal his holiness to us? To cleanse us and save us. That's why Jesus came. To bridge the gap between holy God and sinful man. And this is the beauty of Isaiah. This is the beauty of this eighth verse. This is, this is the beauty of what we see of trying to make sense of life. And this is it. If you want to make sense of life, understand this. The same God who forgives us and saves us has purpose for us. And so much of the problem in our life and why life doesn't make sense is we have no purpose. We see no meaning. It doesn't add up because we're outside of Christ. I know people will always talk about finding their purpose and finding what life has meaning. And they'll find it in all these different things. And that's fine. They keep looking. But life never comes together. Life comes together in the holiness of God, in Christ, because there. We find purpose. We understand what life is supposed to look like. Debbie and I bought this puzzle. We're supposed to put a puzzle together. We've never put a puzzle together before. I don't know that we can work that well together. We're going to try. <laughs> and we're going to, it's like a 60,000 piece puzzle. I don't know. Maybe, maybe a thousand. It's something like that. I don't know. And we're going to dump all, and I put puzzles together. You dump all the puzzles out and it's confusing. And you don't know what it's supposed to do until you look at the box. And the box tells you what the puzzle is supposed to look like. That's what it's supposed to look like. We're supposed to look like God, holy. That's the purpose of life, is to honor and glorify him. That can only happen through Jesus. Jesus comes and saves us, and we have purpose. And what do we say? We say this all the time around this place. We want to bring honor and glory to God and help people come to Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's where life makes sense. Life begins to look like the picture on the box when I live my life to honor holy God and help people who were separated from him honor him as well in Christ. See, I can't speak for you, but I can speak for me. This is what I know. Life begins to make sense when I realize that God is holy and I am not. I, I, I can't explain how simple that is. I know the world out there will scoff at that, and the world will make fun of that. Listen, this doesn't make life easy. I'm not saying life gets easy. It doesn't. 
I'm not saying there won't be tragedy and difficulties. There will be. Some of you, and it may be me, you're going to face some unbelievable difficulties this year, and you're going to wonder, okay, God, what's the picture supposed to look like? I've got to make sense of this. Listen, I know people tell you when you become a Christian, life gets simple and easy, and that's not true. Sometimes when you become a Christian, life gets hard. I know a lot of people are hoping 2021 will be a whole lot easier. People think, well, maybe for the church, the Christianity will be a whole lot easier. I don't know if you've seen the things in the news in the past week or not here in New Mexico. It ain't getting easier for the church, my friend, not by a long shot. But it makes sense. It makes sense. Life makes sense because God is holy, and I am not. But in Christ, God will take away that guilt, take away that sin, and save me, and give me a purpose in life. He'll show me the picture on the box. We begin by saying that people oftentimes ask why. And some of you will ask why a lot. I get it's instinctive. I know. I do it. And we'll ask why, and people will look for why in religion. They'll look for why in philosophy. They'll look for why in social causes. They'll look for why in, in, in politics. Some will, some will come to the church, and they'll look for why in a church that's very lenient. Some will look for the why in a church that's very legalistic and strict. And they'll do all of that. And all the time, they'll forget the most important question. It's not why, it's who. Who do you turn to? Who do you come to face with? It's the Holy One. It's God. And when you do that, you'll recognize your sinfulness. And you'll want to run away from that sin as fast as you can to the Holy God. And He will forgive you. And He'll give you purpose. Some of you today, whether you're watching online or you're here, you need to come to the Holy God. You need to recognize the sinfulness of your life and admit it. Quit hiding it. Quit pretending you're okay. Quit pretending you're a good person. And come face to face. Not that you just commit sins, but you're sinful. I'm sinful. But holy God in Christ will forgive you. If you will come to Jesus, he will forgive you. He will take the guilt away. He will atone for you. Make you right with God. Give your life to Christ in a moment. Some of us will be here and just come and say, I need to give my life to Jesus. Many of you, most of you who are followers of Christ, is there sin in your life? I'm not just one or two acts, but, but are you living in some type of sinfulness that keeps you away from honoring the holiness of God? How will you ever honor God if you're living in sin? And maybe today is the time you say, woe is me. I need to turn away from the sinfulness of my soul. And God, I need to honor you. And some of you as followers of Christ, you just got to simplify life. It's this, honor God. And maybe what you want to do today is say, God, I just want to praise you. And I want 21 to be, make sense. So God, I'm just going to honor you. I'm going to look for your holiness in everything I do and bring you the glory that is yours. Maybe that's the commitment you need to make today. Maybe you want to pray for someone. You can come here and do that. I will pray with you. Maybe you want to join our church like someone did in the early service. No, I really can't tell you exactly what you as an individual needs to do, but I hear, here's what I'm pretty sure of. You need to walk away from this place today understanding that God is holy and you and I are not. So, Lord, sometimes it's hard 
to face reality. But if we're going to make sense of life, we have to be honest. And honesty begins with seeing your magnificent holiness and realize, God, you are holy and we are sinful. And the only way, Father, for us to be overcome is not by us, but by your grace. And in Jesus, that grace is there if we will but trust him. And if we will trust Christ and the sinfulness of life is removed and we are restored to you in salvation, we will have purpose and life will make sense. Don't let anyone walk away from here today, Father, with life not making sense. Let them all leave behind the why and experience the who, the holiness of God. In whose name we come and pray. Amen. Would you stand? Some of us will be here to greet you, and you come.